storytelling is as old as time itself. Stories run through the lifeblood of humankind. But stories are forgotten as they're passed from generation to generation. My goal with this podcast is to prevent that from happening. To stop these stories from getting lost in the sands of time. I'm David Swiduck, and you're listening to Faded Words. Welcome back, friends. We're going to jump into the conclusion of last week's story, or last episode's story, in just a moment. But first, a quick reminder that if you want to support Faded Words and help keep these stories from fading away, consider sharing Faded Words with your favorite story-loving friends wherever you hang out. We'd love it if they joined us. To keep up with all of the fun happening at AIC Stories and Faded Words, visit AICpod.com or give us a follow at AIC Stories on social media, including, as I've said, Instagram. That's where I'm putting the primary focus on all interaction for this show. Don't forget, we have the AIC Stories book club going over on Goodreads, which you can find under that same name. So come join us as we celebrate good books, good stories, and good times. Let's get to today's story. This is the thrilling conclusion in part two of Candidate for a Coffin by T.W. Ford. Going in to high pressure somebody on a sail, Lamb figured. Another passenger had called 15th, the next floor. Lamb got out there, found the built-in fire escape, and got down to 14. This was a little foolish, he realized. There was no way of finding what office Louis the Goon had visited, still he might see him when he came out. Maybe he had gone to see the boss about that raise Edie was demanding. Maybe he'd come out bouncing on his tail feathers. It was fun following and watching Louis the Goon like watching an ant on a sidewalk flagstone puttering about his puny business, knowing you were going to stamp out its life when it so pleased you. Lamb was just lighting a cigarette, gazing down the hallway of the 14th floor, when the muffled report came up the staircase. It didn't seem possible. A gun seemed so out of place in such surroundings. Then, there were two more shots, a scream intermixed, the shattering of plate glass, Lamb was down the stairs and pulling open the fire door onto the floor below. Immediately, he sniffed the acrid fumes of gunpowder. He was looking out onto an L on that floor, 
onto a tableau of violence. There was just a single office suite on that L directly opposite him. On one of its double doors was lettered Continental Exhibition Corp. The frosted glass of the other door was almost completely broken out, leaving a jagged, fringed aperture through which to view the scene within. Wilson Lamb flattered himself on being pretty cool-headed under all circumstances, but he blinked three times rapidly now. Inside the Continental Exhibition Corporation, one man was slumped over a desk, an automatic half-gripped in his inert hand. He was very dead. Half his head was shot off. Another man was sprawled on the gray broadloom of the reception room, a brownish puddle beneath his side. He wasn't going to be going anyplace in a hurry either. Even as Lamb stared at the carnage, a third figure appeared, wobbling drunkenly from an inner office. He came stooped over, holding his side, crimson speckled froth at his lips. He got to the shattered glass panel and moved the lips at Wilson Lamb. Tell him, the police, it, it was, was Whisper Ross from Shire. He coughed twice on the Chicago then caved in on himself and went flat in the hallway. Lamb saw an ashen-faced, bespectacled man peering around the corner of an L. From further back, through an open doorway, a girl's voice was shrieking for the police over the phone. Lamb remembered the fact that he had a gun on his person. It might be extremely embarrassing if the police picked him up for questioning. Ducking back through the fire door, he ran quickly up to the 16th floor, up past the 15th. Nothing had been heard up there yet. He caught a down car and got out just as the first prowl car came sirening its way onto the side street curb. Afterward, outside the police cordon thrown around the building, somebody jostled against him, peered under his hat brim. Later, Lamb recalled the bluish scar crescent on his left cheek. Hey. Aren't you Reynolds of the Dispatch, pal? Nope, Lamb said. You're a reporter with one of the local sheets, aren't you? The other persisted. I know I've seen you around before. You must have been wearing your other glasses, bud, Lamb said as he turned away. Maybe it was the effect of seeing the handiwork of that other unknown killer. For the police had nabbed nobody yet in that midtown, midday shooting. Anyway, Lamb had the itch to strike. It was like a thirst building in a guy. You've seen somebody else dip into a tall, cool one, and after a while, you feel like you've got to have one yourself. Those three dead men on the 13th floor of that office building had acted like an aphrodisiac on Wilson Lamb. He wanted to get him his corpse, but soon. He knew it when he picked up his victim again. It was almost 4 p.m. Shreds of snow drifting down through New York's early darkness. He was hanging around by the cab stand above 96th on the west side of Broadway, waiting hopefully. He had got so that he felt a little lonely when he didn't have Louis the Goon right handy. He felt on familiar terms with the guy. Of course, Louis the Goon didn't know him, and when he introduced himself, Louis was going to get one hell of a big surprise, like a kick in the teeth, only a lot more permanent. One of the hackies turned up his radio. A news commentator was on. He came to the topic of the Midtown shooting. Three dead, gunned in the office of the Continental Exhibition Corporation. Lamb edged over nearer. 
The Continental Outfit, the announcer said, was the business front of one Big John Gira, well-known local racketeer. Gira was a powerful figure in the Metropolitan Pinball Games Syndicate and had a piece of the number policy racket, too. Police, promising an arrest within 24 hours, claimed the triple killing a step in the fight for control of the numbers game business in this city. They are still seeking the missing Joe the Flasher Abadiro, also reputed to have boasted he would take over the numbers game. Two of the slain men have been identified as close associates of Big John Gira. A building employee stated earlier today that Gira left the premises less than five minutes before the killing. A prominent police official who refused to be quoted asserted the killer was a Chicago torpedo imported for the job, a killer who would not be recognized by members of the New York mobs. We are closing in on him at this very instant, the official concluded. The news broadcaster went on to another item of the day's reports. Lamb turned around and there was Louis the Goon Engel, not four feet away. En route home from the subway, he had paused to listen to the report too. He stood now with a calculating look, almost as if he were checking the verity of the report. Lamb wanted to laugh in his face. If you'd seen those three carcasses leaking blood all over the place, you'd probably have swooned in your britches, my little dope, Lamb addressed him mentally. And the funny part was that the little dope had been so close to it, just a floor away in fact. As he followed him on uptown, down his side street, Lamb had a curious sense of elation. He was in on the ground floor of Death Incorporated, even before voting at a stockholders meeting himself. For he knew who had triggered those three today, who the shy torpedo the cops wanted was, one Whisper Ross. Of course, he might have tipped off the police, say, by a phone call, but he wasn't going to. We killers must stick together, the thought tickled his sense of humor. They were almost at Louis the Goon's roost when Lamb saw how he was going to do it. A boy with a carton of groceries almost ran down Louis, then ducked down into the delivery entrance of the apartment hotel, and Wilson Lamb had his cue. Some ten minutes later, after due investigation, he knew how he was going to put Louis the Goon on the spot and how he was going to get away with it, get clear afterward. The taking of life was the important thing, the major premise. Whether he was caught or not had never seemed important before, but after reviewing the handiwork of Whisper Ross, who had ambled off unimpeded, Lamb saw no reason why he should not do the same. It would be the nth degree in the epitomization of the ego to kill and get away with it. The building's delivery entrance was a perfect avenue of escape. Actually, it did not enter the hotel at first, down a few steps and then it ran rearward between the side of the building and the retaining wall next door, an open-topped alleyway. The delivery doorway was in the rear. A few feet further on was the backyard laying out in a garden with a waterless, aged-brown concrete fountain in the center. A low concrete wall separated it from the property that backed onto it, and there was the payoff. Ambling casually through the darkness, Lamb had discovered that the property in the rear, facing on the next street downtown, was several feet lower. It would be simple to drop over the wall to its paved courtyard, and from that ran a concrete passage beside the apartment house out to the street one block below. 
Emerging on it, Lamb lit a cigarette and went back around the block to Engel's place. He appraised it like a surveyor. First off, it was one of those second-rate places that boasted no doorman. Across the street were those brownstones for a nice dim background. The nearest street lamp was down about 10 feet from the entrance of Engel's place. Engel would come walking along primly right into its light. A man crossing the street from the brownstones a little behind Engel calling out, Hey, Mr. Engel! And... It was a very nice setup. The property line of the building where Engel lived was set back several feet further than that of the old-fashioned private homes between it and Broadway. They would serve as a screen for his movements from one direction when he hit into that delivery alleyway after fixing Louis the Goon's wagon once and for all. It was almost ridiculously simple, Lamb realized. Why, he could almost have chalked an X right there and then on the sidewalk where little Louis would lie down and forget it all. Wilson Lamb hummed as he headed up toward Broadway and decided to have dinner. He had a swell appetite. He was humming snatches from something, minor key, descending scale. It went, come to papa, come to papa, come to papa. He didn't know whether it was from a song or a crap game. Anyway, the dice were sure loaded against a certain party he knew. Down the block, a taxi that had been parked with meter ticking across from Engel's apartment hotel drew away slowly. He went to the movies with Louis the Goon that evening. Louis didn't know anything about it and Lamb bought his own ticket. That too had been extremely simple. After dinner, he had phoned Engel. When Louis himself answered, Lamb had asked for toots. Louis said they had no toots there and Lamb said he was very, very sorry that he must have got the wrong number. And Louis said that was alright, no harm done. And then Lamb said he was sorry he had disturbed him, and Louis said to think nothing of it, no trouble at all. And Lamb said a four-letter word after he had hung up and laughed out loud in the phone booth. Then he hung around and saw Louis come out after dinner. Edie was with him this time. Edie was the type after which some department store advertising department diplomat had coined the term stylish stout. Edie toddled, and she was pretty hefty. If there was a family argument, Lamb would have laid two to one, she would have come home in front by a TKO before the fifth round. They went into the movies on the northwest corner of 96th. The closest Lamb could get was some three rows back. He was disappointed because he could not watch Engel's face. It was a double feature. Pompous Nights was one of those alleged South American musicals whipped up by a couple of sub-morons with the intent purpose of sabotaging the good neighbor policy. The other picture was some ghoulish thing about a mad surgeon. Described in the script as an egomaniac who had the pleasant pastime of revivifying electrocuted felons. That one gave Lamb a pain in the pants too. He had really made a study of egomaniacs. He got out in the foyer right behind the angles. He heard Edie say she thought the one about the nutty dock was so thrilling. Louis the Goon did not agree. He liked those musicals. They take my mind off business, he said. Lamb left them and went in and had a drink. He had two drinks. Now that everything was settled, he felt no impatience. It was all lined up right down to the final curtain. Louis's final curtain. 
Lamb had already decided he would give it to him as he came plodding his smug little way home some evening. Any evening. Maybe tomorrow evening. Now that the details were ironed out, it was fun to leave the closing date open. He could play the fly on the wall in Louis the Goon's life as long as he wanted. And when he got bored with Louis's act, BOP! He would deliver his compact little package to Louis. He started to get bored fast the next day. He rode downtown with Louis and they went over to that same east side hotel and Louis went upstairs. He was gone a long time. Lamb said to himself, That dope goes around in a rut and I'll get in one too just following him and then I will get sore. Eventually, Louis the Goon came back down into the lobby. The tall, swarthy man he had met there the day before was with him. Well, I guess there'll be nothing doing today, Louis the Goon said. Nope, nothing, the other said. They parted. Louis went down to the telephones, used one after consulting a little black book. When he came out, he bought a white carnation for his buttonhole in the florist shop, then treated himself to three 25-center perfectos. Something builds, Lamb told himself. Outside, when Louis the Goon got a taxi, there was something positively cocky about him. Lamb was humming his come to papa again as he took another and trailed him eastward this time. Louis got out at a 3rd Avenue bar and grill and went in. Lamb gave him five minutes and strayed in himself. There was no Louis, not at first anyway. Lamb could feel his pulse beat faster. Then he spotted the dim back room with the booths, and he went through it to the men's room. And there was Louis the Goon, his little clay pigeon, in one of the booths with a doll. She was red-haired by courtesy of the local beauty parlor, cuddling up with a flashy little leopard fur number. She looked like a dance hall hostess from one of those joints where everything goes so long as you keep time to the music. As Lamb passed, she was saying, Now, Daddy... That almost unbuttoned Lamb. Daddy! On his way back, he noticed there were two others in the back room, a couple of men gnawing on pretzels over beers. He stepped back into the bar just in time. Three men had entered. They headed straight for the rear. One of them shouldered Wilson Lamb from his path as if he did not see him. The second one pulled out a cannon and poked it at the bartender, told him to keep his britches on. Then the other two were in the rear and letting go with their cannon. Slammed over against the bar, Lamb had a split-second glimpse of it. For a moment, it almost seemed as if the damn fools were out after Engel. One shot smashed the table lamp in the booth where he sat. Then, the two beer drinkers back in there were around and swapping it out with cannon of their own with the newcomers. Lamb got out of there fast. He got across the street. He saw two men dash out of a side entrance and into a dark sedan that roared away. He did not see Louis the Goon get out. Then, the howling prowl of cars converged on the scene, and there was an ambulance. It took one guy away, another guy it didn't. Lamb worked his way up into the throng and got a glimpse of the other guy getting stiff on the backroom floor. Everybody else was lined up in the bar for questioning. Engel was not among them. So Lamb knew he must have gotten away all right. This is some more of that numbers racket war, a gray-haired sergeant said. And then Lamb began to taste something like panic even as the first neon signs began to smear the wintry shadows. 
He got afraid he might lose his little clay pigeon. Louis the Goon seemed to have a blind genius for getting on the scene when some bloodletting was due. He felt a certain possessiveness towards Louis. Louis belonged to him, and he wasn't going to have him chopped down by any piece of stray lead. Lamb had a bullet earmarked for Louis. He said, I've just been wasting time. He got on the shuttle and over to the west side and up to 96 and across the street from where Louis lived. Well, where Louis used to live, anyway. He was there just 20 minutes. It was 4.43 by his wristwatch when Louis the Goon came down from the corner. He couldn't make out his face at first, but he knew him by the square-set hat. Lamb eased away from the stairs of the brownstone, humming, Come to Papa, come to Papa, come to Papa. This was it. The ultimate in the demonstration or the ego. He told himself that as he moved over the scabrous snow of the street, the zenith and the projection of the psyche, Louis the Goon had his briefcase clutched up under one arm instead of swinging. The final triumph over the fear trauma. Louis was abreast of him, then passing by. Wilson Lamb brought the automatic out from under his coat. He called, Mr. Engel! And Louis the Goon turned, and Lamb held it, wanting him to get a good look at the heater, wanting to get a good look at him as he saw it. Engel had the briefcase open, unbuckled. He was bringing something out of it swiftly, jerkily. It was a heater too, that wasn't in the script. Louis the Goon was stepping out of roll, but Lamb knew he had him anyway and started to squeeze. He would squeeze three times on that trigger and... Somebody else squeezed first. It was the man running from that parked car down the street. Lamb got it in the side and then a red hot finger was probing down into his guts. A man stepped from the vestibule of one of those brownstones and he squeezed and Wilson Lamb couldn't feel the side of his head anymore knew he would never feel it again. He was down on one hand and one knee and his gun was gone. Some place in the black haze seething around him, like a hurt animal, half crawling, knowing only the base instinct of self-preservation, he tried for that delivery alleyway. Somebody else had figured out that was a good spot too. It was the man with the bluest cheek scar who had accosted him after the triple killing in that office building. He squeezed and Lamb took that one square in the chest. In a vague way, as the sidewalk slid up at him, he was aware of that car backfiring away like hell. The man with the blue scar was standing over him, throwing words to Louis the Goon in a quick, harsh whisper. This the one, whisper. He come in here with you Wednesday. He was on the spot when you give it to them boys in Gira's office yesterday. Today, he was in that bar when they tried to get you. The flasher said to stick close to you and him. Gira's finger man, eh? Called back Engel softly. Yeah, whisper. The blue scarred man ran. In a moment, a car roared off down the block toward West End Avenue. Lying there on the sidewalk, blasted for keeps, his wagon fixed. Wilson Lamb tried to put it together. Things moved very slowly for him, whisper. Whisper Ross, shy torpedo. Then he had it. Whisper Ross was Louis the Goon Engel, hired killer of Joe the Flasher Abadero. The guy he, Wilson Lamb, had fingered for an exposition of his ego. Down the sidewalk, little Mr. Louis Engel, alias Whisper Ross, 
stood looking at the body and going, tisk tisk through pursed lips. Wilson Lamb's ego died a horrible death 17 seconds before he did. That was the conclusion, part two, of A Candidate for a Coffin by T.W. Ford. This was originally published in The Hooded Detective, volume three, number two, January 1942. Fun little twist on that story with a little crime noir, a little bit of a uh, unanticipated mm, twisting of things in the end. I kind of liked it. A lot of fun. Anyways, I hope you enjoyed that one, and if you want to hear more, be sure to come back next episode or visit the archives to satisfy your story needs. And as always, if you've already listened to everything in the Faded Words and AIC Stories archives and Mystery Minnesota, and still need some more great storytelling in your life, please consider giving yesterday's sci-fi a listen. My good friend Adam is sharing fantastic science fiction stories from days past, very much like I'm doing here on Faded Words, with a focus on science fiction. It's amazing, excellent storytelling, and as I always say, he's got a much better voice for it than I do. Anyways, go check him out at yesterdayscifi.com or by searching Yesterday Sci-Fi in the podcast player of your choice. If you enjoy Faded Words, I am positive that you are going to love what Adam is doing with yesterday's sci-fi. Now naturally, I'd love it if you checked out all of the other storytelling fun happening with Adventures and Creativity Productions as well. So if you subscribe to AIC Stories in your podcast app, you'll get all of the great AIC Stories content in one convenient place. That's Faded Words, Mystery Minnesota, the original Adventures in Creativity, and some new secret projects coming up very shortly. Faded Words is an Adventures in Creativity production produced and narrated by David Swiduck, with original stories credited to the public domain. I'll be back soon with another story, and I hope to see you then, but until then, take care, make sure and read a lot more stories, and thank you for helping to keep these stories alive. I'm David Swiduck, and this is Faded Words.